Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is William Thompson, and welcome to this special uh, Scotonomics. I'll be joined by, as ever, my co-host, Kieran Van Sweden. And you'll also see on screen, we have uh, Richard Luffy. Hello, Kieran. Hello, Richard. Hello. Thanks very much for joining us tonight, Richard. Uh, this is, like, I suppose this is my first proper JERS kind of madness. And um, I've been on Twitter for most of the day, and I was actually really surprised. A lot of the conversations were quite well informed and quite engaged, you know. And I think that's from people who believe the figures, who don't believe the figures, who are unionists, who are independents. And, and, and I think it's really good that we're having the, 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 the debate. So I just wanted to say, firstly, thanks to everyone who was on my Twitter feed today and all of the views. It's really appreciated that we can have this type of uh, conversation. Now, Richard, you don't live in Scotland, you're not a member of the Scottish political party and I always think that you don't have any particular dog in this fight when we're talking about when we're talking about chairs. I don't think you like this because you just hate appallingly bad use of kind of accounting practices, statistics and figures. Um, is that a fair way to introduce your kind of interest in, in chairs? Well, look, there are two reasons why I'm interested in chairs. You know, 2014 made me think hard about what I would do if I was living in Scotland. Um, and I could have been living in Scotland and what, how would I have voted? And I realized I would have voted yes. Come on, that's you know, one of my conclusions, which is hardly surprising. Um, you know, look at my name, it's Murphy. I have an Irish passport. I'm proud of the fact that Ireland is an independent country. That's the part of Ireland where my family came from. So I guess there's an affinity there with about you know thinking that countries should be independent. So it's not true I've got no political interest in this. I understand the reason why people want self-determination for a country like Scotland. Why did I get upset about Jers in particular? Well, actually, it was, as you say. I got really annoyed about the fact that when I looked at this data, I came up with this term called crap um, to describe it, which seems to have become, you know, moderately well known in the context of this debate. And that was because I described JERS as going to completely rubbish approximation to the truth. When I actually broke the numbers down, first of all, I mean, almost everything was estimated when I first looked. And even when you read the methodology for this year's version, if you look, for example, at the revenues, it still says that almost everything is an estimate. Even the income tax figures are to some degree estimated this year. They come from HMRC, but they aren't a perfect extrapolation from the Scottish database. The NIC figures, the national insurance figures look very odd this year. I don't understand them. I don't know why they're so high proportionately. And there are many things like that. When you look at the expenditure side, what do you actually see the vast majority of the expenses of the UK are apportioned to Scotland on the basis of population, 8.1%. And yet I put out figures on the blog this morning and show that the vast majority of the expenses actually represent more than 8.1% of the total UK spend. And in some cases, vastly higher. You know, in terms of public administration costs, something like 13 to 14% of the total costs in the UK are apparently incurred in Scotland. That's why I think, frankly, that's happened is they've taken the UK figure and then they've taken the figures for running Scotland and they've added the two together, not allowing for the fact that some things obviously aren't done twice in Scotland. But they've done that sort of crass stuff. And I'm afraid to say, I just think that this is really poor accounting. It's also really bad accounting because one of the basic rules of accounting is that you must use the same formula, the basis for calculation on both sides of an equation. 
when we look at JERS, the figure for income is income arising in Scotland. So that's what they think is the tax paid in Scotland, not the tax paid for Scotland. Now, I think there's a big difference between tax paid in Scotland and for Scotland. Um, just looking at a few numbers today, I suggested there's several billion likely to be in that one. But on the expenditure side, the expenditure is for Scotland, not in Scotland. And let's explain that difference. For means this includes, for example, an apportioned part of the entire cost of the Royal Navy. Um, and, you know, frankly, Scotland would not have a Royal Navy like the one it's got. It doesn't necessarily want it at all. But if we look at other things, you know, HS2, which is not going to come near Scotland for decades and decades, if ever, is being apportioned to Scotland and there's no benefit from it. We know that the mass of public transport investment in the UK is in the southeast of England, and that's being apportioned to Scotland. This is nonsense. We had a specific question today on Twitter, which was, in: will any of the um, at the 30 Five billion, I think it is round about that was spent on the um, search and trace app in, in, in England. Is any of that attributed to Scotland's expenditure? <laughs> Look, do we know where any of that is being spent and who is it being spent with and when is it being spent and why is it being spent and what is it being spent on? Look, I can't answer those questions because that information hasn't been published. I mean, if you look at the work of the Good Law Project and Jolian Morn, who runs that, he's actually an old friend of mine. Um, you know, we spent quite a lot of time talking to each other in the days when he was more a tax campaigner than he is what he is now and you know, we can't find out what's going on there some of that spend must be in scotland of course it is got to be um why because well people have got covid in scotland we know that but how much of that is under scottish government control how much is being apportioned from england to scotland even though scotland is running its own programs again we just don't know the data that's issued the methodology notes that are issued are very scanned it just says apportioned on the basis of population yeah but hang on a minute how are you preventing double counting again this sort of thing i, I can't tell you because we haven't got the answers to me this is very very poor accounting i mean all government accounting is pretty rubbish i mean let's be honest i'm not saying that i know many governments that count very well bizarrely the governments that i know that account best in the world are the tax havens of jersey and the isle of man which is really weird but they've got so many accountants in their populations that i guess they get their accounting right but overall government accounting isn't great but this is a really bad compared to even that low level and just on that, before I, I jump in with a question from the um, from the audience there, is that if you look at the JERS report, um, it says um, a national statistic publication um, for Scottish government expenditure and revenue Scotland was assessed by the Office for Statistics Regulation and can be interpreted to mean that the statistics meet identified users' needs, are produced, managed, and disseminated to high standards, and are explained well. So. A lot of people on my feed were saying, yeah, Richard will see the stats are terrible, but there's in this report that says that they're actually really good. Is that what that says in that report? Well, look, come on a minute. The accounts of Carillion 
The company that went bust a few years ago with a spectacular loss of jobs and a loss of revenue to everybody were signed off by the auditors just before they went bust, saying they were true and fair. Well, that's equivalent to what the ONS are doing to the JERS statistics. They're saying they're true and fair because they have managed to tick the right box to say the right processes have been followed. But does that mean the questions that somebody might ask have been answered? And in fact, in JERS, and I put this on my blog this morning, there are meant to be three questions. Is the income correctly stated? Is the expenditure cor correctly stated? And is the difference between the, the two a fair representation of the truth? And the fact is that the answer is we don't know the income's correctly stated. We don't know the expenditure is correctly stated. And you can't compare income in with expenditure for without making a big series of adjustments that don't take place. And therefore, frankly, whatever the ONS say, they're wrong. And I'm quite happy to say they have done a crap job on this as well. I mean, it really is dire. And I'm engaged with ONS sometimes on data. You know, I actually engage with them is what is in the national debt a year ago. I still haven't published this research. And do you know what? They don't know what's in the national debt. They couldn't explain it. They couldn't make the figures add up. So don't have too much confidence in the ONS because sometimes they produce rubbish and they are on COVID. They are on JERS. They are on the national debt. Sorry. But just because they're a statistician doesn't mean to say they can add up properly. Great. Thank you. Uh, a question from our audience. Have you any thoughts on uh, the, the registered office company's house uh, and where the income is attributed to? If your company house or your registered office is different, where is this money attributed to? Look, we, as far as we know, the registered office has no impact on this at all. Um, you know, it's a long time ago that having a Scottish registered office and an SC company number was seen as any real indication that you were actually trading in Scotland. Um, I can remember when I was a practicing accountant in London, we had clients who were based in London who for some reason had SC company numbers. Uh, it didn't make any odds. They just got a registered office somewhere, you know, at an accommodation address in Edinburgh, but it didn't mean they were generating Scottish income. So that registered office address is neither here nor there. Actually, it isn't stated how we really know what the profits in um, Scotland are. And this is a big number. If you actually look at the way in which the GDP of a country is made up, roughly half now, of like the UK as a whole, is labour, wages. 35% is profits. Now, let's be clear, there's more to prop than this to profits. It, that also includes interest and it includes a lot of rents and so on. But profit's a big number. And so therefore, getting the allocation of profit between England, Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland right to be able to decide where the corporation tax is due is vital. But I'd also add into this, there are 4.8 million companies in the UK right now. And I checked the data yesterday. Because uh, I was filming on this issue and only 1.6 million of those are actually declaring they have taxable income. Hang on. That means that basically <laughs> around two thirds of the companies in the UK are not telling us anything about their trading. Um, so who knows? Because the fraud in the UK corporate tax system is probably absolutely enormous, both in the UK and from the UK, if we're using those two terms again, you know, we are a massive tax haven enabling vast quantities of fraud. But if we can't even account for companies as a whole, how the 
heck do we know what part of it is in Scotland? My suggestion is, though, that this is something that the Scottish government should be putting a massive focus on to try to actually demand a proper company register for Scotland, the power to actually prosecute companies which fail in Scotland and pursue the information that is required for Scotland in a way that doesn't happen. There hasn't been an actual Scottish prosecution of a company for failure to supply information to the Registrar of Companies for well over a decade. I mean, wow, what a license to broad that is. You know, come on, negligent. And I, I was saying that the fact that the ONS is saying these, uh, this report's fine, it means it's difficult for independent-minded people to say there's an issue with it. The other problem is that it's published by the Scottish Government. Not by Westminster, but the Scottish Government. So, in, in all the chats we were having today, that definitely undermines your argument when people are saying, well, it must be true because the Scottish Government are publishing it. Have you got any thoughts on that? And a supplement question, I'm, I'm pretty sure Kate Forbes said that they were going to produce a kind of in, independently weighted chairs um, to combat the crap one, as AGM has suggested. Any idea why that hasn't happened yet? I'm baffled. I mean, I think until, you know, for a long time, Frankly, there was a, a strong alignment between the Scottish government and the Fraser of Allender Institute at University of Strathclyde, um, as though Fraser of Allender knew everything. And Fraser of Allender is firstly a unionist, as far as I can work out by and large in its orientation. It has a labour route to its origin. And B is very biased towards a very conventional form of thinking about these issues. It's, it's very much like the Inst uh, Institute for Fiscal Studies in England. You know, it's incredibly small-minded economist thinking. Now, I was a professor of political economy, I'm now a professor of accounting, and we don't think the same way as that type of economist. We look at where the power relationships which lead to the allocation of income, profits and wealth might be, which are fundamentally different from what the numbers say. Power relationships actually distort where numbers are. That's why I always look at what is it that creates the distortion. Um, why is it that Scotland, the SNP government, has produced this document for so long? Well, look, if I'm honest, and I've spoken to Alex Salmon about this, because I know Alex, I'm not a member of Albert or anybody else in Scotland, let's be clear. I know Patrick Hervey. I don't know many people in the, in the SNP government at the moment, although I know plenty of SNP MPs. So I know the Scottish political scene. And actually, most SNP backbenchers, whether MSP or MP, seem as bemused as you are, Will, about, you know, why is this going on? Why is this being produced by the Scottish government when it appears to be, well, a gift to the unionists? And, you know, to Today we saw Kate Forbes, we saw Nicola Sturgeon both trying to explain, well, despite this, we can be an independent Scotland. Well, of course you can, because this is no indication of what Scotland would do now or ever in the future. So I genuinely am completely baffled why, A, they don't try and get the statistics right and carry on using a methodology which comes from the ONS, which appears to be wrong, and B, actually, why they actually don't just sit down and say, we demand the right to collect the statistics that makes it reasonable for us to predict what might actually happen in an independent Scotland. So we've got the groundwork in place to be able to plan for that when the time comes, and we know what changes we're going to need to make. Now, I'll refer to that really good Commonweal book, which I think was a really good Commonweal book, How to Make an, a Nation, wasn't it? How to Make a Country, How to Start a Country. Um, Robin McAlpine was behind that project. Now, what that book was about was, you know, there being a three-year transition. Well, three years isn't long to make a transition. The more data we could collect now to prepare for that, the better. And the fact is that the SNP government surely has got the powers to do this. They said they were going to start a Scottish national 
International Statistical Agency. And I think that's underway. But clearly it hasn't got as far as dealing with this, perhaps the most important statistic they can produce with regard to independence. So I am continually baffled. I just hope that maybe 2021 will be the last years. And once we've got you know, a bit of COVID behind us, it's time for Kate Forbes and her team to get on and produce a decent document. And I'm more than willing to lend a hand if anybody wants some advice. I know my way around these statistics. And Kieran, have you, have you any questions for Richard? Yeah, I have I have lots of questions. So I just wanted to mention that I, I did manage to read uh, the first part of yours this morning and your question about the report that the Scottish Government are going to produce um, an alternative to GERS. This is something that Derek Mackay talked about. Um, it is written in the report that that is on the way, but because of the pandemic that um, that they've been, uh, they've fallen back with that work. So, but the, I want to get right to the root of GERS. So the GERS addresses three questions about Scotland's public sector accounts for a given year. So the first one is, what revenues were raised in Scotland? Now that that's an interesting thing, but I also want to know how much revenue we're losing through tax evasion or tax avoidance in Scotland. Because obviously, if we are losing currency in our country, then that massively affects our economy when we lose currency. The answer to that question is I don't know, of course, because we have inadequate measures of tax losses in the UK. Now, again, people will say, but the UK is the most comprehensive country in the world with regard to publishing information on tax abuse. And I will be you know, give credit where it's due. HM Revenue and Customs published the only annual report in the world of estimated tax losses. And it makes JERS look fantastic in terms of quality. Um, it's made up. I'll tell you what, it will come out in September and the figure is £33 billion. How do I know it's 33 billion? Because it's been between 32 billion and 37 billion for the last 10 years. So I'll pick a number between the two. And that number will be you know, near enough, 33, 34 billion. And it always is. And they'll always say it's a massive success. I've written a lot about tax gap theory, about this issue, probably more than most people on earth. Sad git that I am. And at the moment, I'm working with the IMF, the World Bank, and potentially the UN on this issue. So, you know, this is something that I'm more than familiar with. I'm talking to the IMF and World Bank next week um, about some ideas that I've helped develop. And I believe that if the Scottish government is really serious about taking control of its economy, managing these losses, then it needs to pick up what HM Revenue and Customs has done actually say it's not good enough and then start estimating the tax gap that is how much tax is not paid at five levels the first one is that there are certain taxes that just aren't charged in scotland which could be charged in scotland in the future land value tax for example wealth taxes we don't have them why don't we have them should we have them why not in a country so divided with regard to wealth as yes, scotland is so divided with regard to land ownership as scotland is why aren't we having these taxes that uh, tax is there for a social purpose you know i got a copy of my own book the joy of tax um, little plug, but I argued in that book that tax is the single most powerful mechanism any government has got to change the structure of the society that 
it is responsible for to suit its social objectives. Now, anybody with any sense would know that Scotland needs to be more equal and there needs to be a better distribution of land in Scotland. We obviously also need better distribution of income. So first one is why aren't you taxing things? The second one, and I'll just put this in context, I'll use UK numbers for this, but total UK tax revenues are a bit under 800 billion at the moment. Total tax reliefs, that's the money that's officially given away to people in a year, is over 400 billion. So for every two pounds we raise, one pound is given away. Now, some of that is the personal allowance. Well, everybody gets that, but a lot of that is not. For example, we subsidize pensions by 60 billion a year, and most people who have pensions are wealthy. You've got to have, be wealthy to have money left over to save, which is what a pension is. So the fact is we have a tax system which is heavily biased towards the wealthy already. Scotland's got one. The assumption in Jersey is that somehow after independence, the same social priorities would exist as they do before independence. Um, I did some work for the Scottish Independence Commission. I sort of raised these issues in a paper for them about how Scotland would need to reappraise its tax system before it becomes independent in this transition when there's another vote. Because this is the next loss we've got. Scotland is losing maybe 50 billion a year, perhaps a bit less, of, of deductions for this reason. And then we get to evasion and then we get to avoidance. And according to the UK revenue, that total loss is you know, 35 billion a year. So Scotland's share is two to three billion. I don't believe it. I've already mentioned why I don't believe it. Two thirds of the companies in the UK do not submit corporation tax returns with a single source of income on them. But some of them are just undertaking fraud. Let's be blunt. And that's where the lost money is. I reckoned it was easy to think there was 40 to 50 billion lost there, which would be 5 billion or so for Scotland at least. And I that's where I think the real questions need to be asked. And Scotland and Revenue Scotland should be used as a mechanism to put pressure on London, on Westminster, and to start this process of reform now to demand that change take place. But of course, corporation tax isn't devolved. And this is part of the whole problem we've got. Yeah. You look at, they say, oh, well, you know, you could raise more tax, you could change the taxes. Well, we saw the article in the Herald recently, which said that, you know, 700 billion of revenue went up. And of that, about 500 billion, if I remember rightly, was clawed back through the block grant to London. So actually, a tax increase in Scotland was a sub subsidy to England. But if you're going to actually have an effective policy against tax abuse, you've got to control both income tax and corporation tax at the same time, because otherwise the fraudsters can move between whichever tax they want to fa get favour from. So Scotland could clamp, clamp down on tax evasion in income tax and the evaders would just form a company. And it only costs 15 quid to form a company, so there's no incentive not to. So you've got to have a joined up policy. Scotland has to get a better devolved tax power or else it can't be responsible. We have a government at Holyrood which isn't really in charge. And that's also worrying. And I think this is one of the reasons you asked me, why does you know, the, the Scottish government not want to you know, be as critical of this as it could be? Because I actually don't think that the ministers in Holyrood want to admit they're not really in charge. I mean, that's quite a big thing to admit. We're only in charge of some of this. Now, Kate Forbes did say that today. 
And she said, yeah. we've only got yeah. 70% of the expense of the expenditure and 40% of the income. That's a sort of admission, but actually make it blatant and upfront and say, we can't manage this because you won't let us, Westminster. Go on the attack. Why not? Yeah, well, I mean, we, we know that Scotland is a currency user as opposed to a currency creator. Mm -hmm. And this is fundamentally the, why GERS actually seems like a pointless exercise to me. Uh, but the other two points, I wanted to amalgamate them. So how much how much did the country pay for the public services that were consumed? And three, to what extent did the revenues raised cover the cost of these public services? Now that really starts getting into the deficits are bad narrative. Um, which is which is very much um, part of the GERS uh, report. Yeah. Deficits are bad. Now we we understand that deficits are not bad, and that deficits sh should reflect what what a government requires to spend within the country itself. I, I just wanted to maybe point out to the listeners, you know, at the moment we are running a deficit in the the whole of the UK of what percentage of GDP is it at the moment? Do you know? What percentage of GDP? Well, the deficit's running at around 280 to 300 billion and GDP is 2.2 trillion. So we are talking about 14, 15%. So, and I believe in the Second World War, it was 200%. It was. Total national debt got to 250% of GDP. Yeah. At the moment, national debt, if you believe that national debt is not affected by quantitative easing, and it clearly is, but if you take the gross figure they claim, it's about 100% of GDP. So compared to 1945, national debt now is only 40% in proportion to GDP of what it was in um, 1945. And yet that did not stop us starting the NHS and reinvesting in uh, the railways and creating new public transport and buses systems and fundamentally changing education and raising the school leaving age and building large numbers of what were in England called secondary modern schools and so on and all of those sort of things happened plus the biggest council house building program that had ever existed the legacy of which are some really good houses that people now buy of course in the private property market for a lot of money and all of that was done with government money despite there being debt to 250 percent now, I, I want to come back to the question you just made about the deficit, Karen, because I, I actually addressed this on my own blog this morning. Have a look there. I answered this question. And I said, look, I, I did a simple word search on the um, the JERS document, you know, and I just searched quantitative, as in quantitative easing, because in the last year, the government basically ran a deficit. It coming on for 300 billion. And although it denies it, every single penny of that was financed by the Bank of England. But the Bank of England, of course, is under the direct and absolute control of the UK government treasury, even though, again, they deny that. Their assurance on this is as good as an ONS certificate on the Jersey documentation. I mean, it's a blatant, straightforward mistruth that they say that the Bank of England is in independent because it isn't. And not at all. The law says so. Um, but, you know, 300 billion of the government's debt issued in the last year was repurchased by the Bank of England, which is controlled by the Treasury. And therefore, it came back to where it started. There was no new debt created. So apparently Scotland created lots of debt, 35 odd billion. But actually, we know as a reality, the UK created no debt at all last year 
because it was all covered by QE and QE is owned by the government. That's debt owned by the government. And that's rather like owing yourself your own mortgage. Now, if I had to pay myself my own mortgage, I really wouldn't give a damn about what the rate was, how much I owed each month, because it would be like moving money out of my you know, left pocket and putting it in my right pocket or between you know my account and my wife's account. And they both happen to be joint accounts. You know, it's as absurd as that. So this is not a real transaction at all. And yet it was pretended as if Scotland is a great burden when debt has been no burden to the UK at all, literally not one penny in the last year. Now imagine Scotland was independent and it could do QE, which it could if it was independent with important criteria, its own currency, which is why Scotland has to have its own currency, then Scotland wouldn't have a debt problem either, just as England hasn't. But Scotland wants to make, uh, England wants to make Scotland feel very guilty for imposing all this debt burden on the poor people who live around where I'm sitting right now in East Anglia. Richard, I've got another question for you here. And when you're looking at JERS, it specifically mentions a particular product in Scotland, and that's oil. And and I find this really peculiar. You would see a report that, 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 that says it's measuring the whole economy, but it has this little line and it says, including oil. What is the reason for that? It seems really bizarre that it's picking one particular product. You know. Can I interject here? Because I counted that North Sea was mentioned within the first four pages, 34 times. <laughs> Look, let's go back to the legacy, obviously. You know, what is this all about? I mean, go back to 1992. Why was JERS created? But, you know, this is a, a document created by the Conservatives to try to indicate that Scotland was not capable of being an independent country at the time when Labour, and it wasn't an SNP issue at the time, but Labour was beginning to talk devolution very seriously. Of course, it had done before in 1979, but it was becoming a threat to the Tories. So they wanted to show that Scotland could not stand on its own two feet. They still want to do that. That's the purpose of JERS now. But of course, in 1992, oil was flowing like fury um, in a way that it is not flowing anymore. And the price of oil relative you know, to general prices was higher. Um, so the price per dollar in real terms was higher than it is now. And therefore the taxes, which were also a lot better constructed in those days than they are now, because actually oil companies pay taxes, whereas now by and large Scottish oil companies get subsidies rather than pay taxes, because that's how absurd the uh, regime on Scottish taxation, oil taxation has become compare it to Norway, where that is not true, and you realise how daft the Scottish oil regime is, but they had to separate oil and the North Sea out from the rest of Scotland, because if they didn't separate oil and the North Sea out from the rest of Scotland, then it would look like Scotland was a really, really great place, really making a massive stonking pile of money, which was contributing to the overall well-being of the UK, which, of course, it was. <laughs> Absolutely, from beginning to end, Scotland was pouring money into London and Margaret Thatcher had been using it to support up to three million unemployed people who she described as being on invalidity benefit, whether they were or weren't, just to get round the fact that she basically had crashed the UK manufacturing economy and oil kept it going. So what's the legacy of that? There's two issues about that. One, this 
mention of North Sea oil continually is a legacy of that. Remember also, it describes oil on two bases, one of which is a population apportionment basis, and one is a geographic basis. And the geographic basis is, of course, deeply contested because that's the weirdest line for the border between England and Scotland that has ever been drawn in the history of the relations between the countries. How the border between England and Scotland suddenly heads due north when it hits the North Sea um, is very hard to work out, but apparently it does in the oil map, but not on any other logic that's ever been created. And we have this separation to try to show that still Scotland is somehow perhaps still benefiting from oil. Well, oil is still a key issue. Because one of the numbers that was in JERS this morning was the allocation of debt interest to Scotland. Bizarrely, Scotland's debt interest burden apparently is bigger than 9% of the total UK debt interest burden, even though there's only 8.1% of the people of the UK live in Scotland. Why the people of Scotland have a bigger debt burden, an interest obligation, than the rest of the UK does per head of population, I don't know, but it's one of those anomalies which just riddles all the way through, Jers. But the other point is, why does Scotland have any debt burden at all? because for 20 to 30 years, Scotland poured money into the English exchequer. That money that now represents the UK national debt was net of the fact that they didn't have to borrow because Scotland supported the English economy. Therefore, I don't believe there's any real money owing at all. Now, I've written about this at length. Go look at my blog. I can explain why now's not the moment. But this fixation is an old one, and but reveals the purpose of this document. The purpose of this document was to show Scotland in the worst possible light. And that's why we have oil separated from the rest of the activity, because that's the only way Scotland could look bad for decades. Brilliant. Thanks for that. It would be great to see the JERS report if it went back 30 years to see rather than just picking these individual years from, from 1999. Um, we've got our first um, caller, uh, Ross, who I'm going to bring on, and he's got a question for us. Uh, here you come, Ross. Hello. Hi, Ross. Hello, Richard. Um, I've been watching and watching intensely. Um, I've been operating companies in Scotland um, for more than 20 years now, several companies. We do CT600 tax returns every year. We do PAY returns every month, and we do VAT returns every quarter. Okay? None of these returns state anything to do with economic activity. Mm -hmm. um, now, my question on that is, when, when I return my CT600, the second question on that, it's, it relates to your company registration number. Now, you're aware that in Scotland, it starts with an SC prefix. Every Indeed. company has a, an eight-digit eight eight number. The ones in Scotland have SC with six numbers. UK ones that are registered in London have eight numbers. So when that CT600 goes to HMRC and it goes into the co-tax system, which is a corporation corporation tax counting system it's like uh it's like what the post office have for recognizing postcodes on letters it recognizes the sc code all right so that's allocated to scotland so companies like tenants brewery barzai and brew that all registered in edinburgh and were all given an sc prefix 
Macam included as an SC prefix. Kevin Haig, his company has got an SC prefix. Kevin Haig won't answer this question. And ask Kevin Haig, Kevin Haig today, how does he report his economic activity to the government? Well, he blocked me. He blocked me. <laughs> so, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Funny, funny, I know he blocked me. So the government need to get this information somehow from companies. It either comes in a PAYE return, a VAT return, or a corporation tax return. And the only thing that I can see in any of the three returns is the company registration number that relates to government government mythology, which states that profits are allocated to registered office location. So this leads my question, you know, companies like Asda, companies like B&Q, companies like Serco, companies like Shell UK, all registered in London. Mm-hmm. Why are we not, not getting those taxes? Why are we not getting... You know, I'm going to say a population share. It wouldn't be a population share because you can never work out through population how much ASDA does in Hamilton compared to ASDA in London. Let, let me okay. come in on that because we can deal with that issue. One of your comments is absolutely right, that we never get perfect data. I mean, I know I call Jers crap, but I don't expect perfection. I just expect us to get to you know, as good as we can get. And this is a long way from as good as we can get. And you're right about the tax data too, Ross, because this is a long way from as good as we can get. For example, if you're, you're VAT registered, you said so. So you're sending in your VAT return. You know where your customers are. You know where you're billing to. How hard would it? be to require companies to include within the UK an additional code which is code your sales as to the country of destination. Now you've got to do that if you're exporting anyway and most businesses do some degree of exporting at some point of time. So it's really not hard to code information on where your customer is. So we can find out incredibly easily where the scale of act- economic activity is. We could ask Asda, what proportion of your sales are through the store in Hamilton and everywhere else in Scotland and give us the real data. We could ask them, what part of your payroll is in Scotland? I mean, you will know what part of your payroll is in Scotland, Ross. It's yeah. really, really not difficult stuff. Sage can do that. You can, you can put that onto Sage. You can input that in, in Sage, and it would deal with it, and it would send it to your accountant, and it would be done. Easy. Precisely. And and uh, Sage, by the way, is, is is a good product in this sense. I mean, I'm still a practicing chartered accountant a little bit. I mean, somewhere deep inside me, I mean, the words chartered accountant exist, despite the fact that I'm an academic now. Um, and I still got a practicing certificate as a chartered accountant. So I still know how things work. I, the, the systems for smaller businesses can handle this really well. The large companies say, oh, we don't know that. Look, I'm going to give you a little example here. I created the system called Country by Country Reporting. It is used now in 90 countries around the world. I made it up in 2003. I literally made it up. I thought it up. I published it as an idea. It's now the law in 90 countries in the world. I was told for several years by the biggest firms of accountants, it would be impossible for a large company to report which country it made its sales in. They didn't know, they said. And I always pointed out to them, in that case, your company is out of control and it's breaking the law because it needs to know where its tax liability is owing. The truth is, when it became the law, they all managed to comply really, really quickly. 
and they could with Scotland provide this information for Scotland very easily in all companies very quickly without much effort because the computerized systems and making tax digital by the way is going to make this even easier and you're going to have to comply with making tax digital systems of disclosure if you're not already doing it soon we could get this data what it needs is somebody in the Scottish government who understands the need for this. It needs somebody in Revenue Scotland who's willing to cooperate and shout with Kate Forbes for this and demand the data, and we could have real information for Scotland. I believe that's possible. Thanks, thanks, Richard. Ross, thanks so much for your question. We've got into the, the real detail of JRC, speaking about where the money comes from. I want to just take us back up to the top level here. I pulled from Twitter today, um, our, our friend Jackie Bailey, and Jackie Bailey said this year's Jeff's figure tell a story about the state of Scotland's economy flagging before the pandemic and made worse by it. Fundamentally, however, the report exposes the dangers of independence while demonstrating how by 1800 £1, pounds per person, Scots are better off in the UK. That's Jackie's take, Richard. What's your take on that? So what is the truth? The truth is, as we've already said, is we don't know what the income of Scotland is the very real chance is that a lot of Scottish income is recorded in England. The real chance is, I mean, and again, this is ridiculous, but we have to point this out, that she's talking about the total income of Scotland, but she's not understanding that the total income of Scotland is not just what ends up in people's pay packets. It does include corporate profits. It does include rents. It does include interest and things, many of which are diverted out of Scotland. And she's forgetting all those technicalities. In fact, she isn't forgetting them because she doesn't even know them based upon the evidence of discussions I've had face to face with her, which I have had, and which were you know, pretty unedifying. In sense of showing that she did not know what was really going on. So there is a lack of comprehension. There's a belief that somehow this is a very simple thing to add up. Now, I'm not pretending it is. I'm going to suggest instead that what these people need to do is fully understand what makes up a government's income and what makes up a government's expenditure. And she gets her head around the fact that, first of all, the Scottish income here is almost certainly understated. And the Scottish expenditure, which is calculated, as I keep saying, on a totally different basis, the expenditure for Scotland, not the expenditure in Scotland, is fundamentally different. And therefore, if you set up a system where the income side is always inherently going to be smaller than the expenditure side, you're bound to have a bigger deficit than the rest of the country. Let me give you a simple example as to why that would be the case. The defence expenditure of the UK as a whole is apportioned to Scotland. And I believe you will find that as a result, there is more expense defend, uh, expenditure recorded for Scotland than is expended in Scotland. That's unsurprising because part of the expense expenditure for Scotland is incurred outside the UK as a whole altogether. But is Scotland credited with the UK tax paid on those Army, Navy and Air Force personnel working outside Scotland whose cost is charged to Scotland. No, it isn't. And therefore, we have a system which is guaranteed to deliver a bigger deficit than is the case. Now, there is a deficit in Scotland. Let's not pretend there isn't, because I'm certain there is a deficit in Scotland at the present point of time. But there's a deficit in almost every country around the world at this point of time. That's unsurprising. Would the deficit be as big a year ago in the last report as it should, you know, as it was reported? Because then it was reported to be roughly, was it eight, 
percent or so and the uk was claiming to be on almost nothing no it would not have been as big as it was the point is that this difference between scotland and england which is fundamentally what we're talking about is because of the met false method of accounting which does not apply to the uk accounts because nobody's spitting things artificially between pots into which they're allocating money so jackie's comment reveals the fact that, i mean a political prejudice b unionism um c a lack of knowledge of how these accounts are prepared um and i believe that is she still deputy leader of the labor party in scotland um if she is still then she should be frankly informing herself and she's an msp she should be understanding better what is going on with regard to the accounting inside jurors than she is because I'm afraid it's embarrassing to hear this sort of comment made by somebody who should be better informed. You know, Kevin Haig just makes up numbers. He doesn't will be produced loads of graphs, I'm sure, today. But the reality is he, too, is actually looking at things on a very, very microeconomic perspective. Can I just make this little point? They're all viewing it as if Scotland is some sort of business. Scotland isn't a business. Scotland's a country. Countries are completely different from businesses because in a country your expenditure is somebody's income. If you record the expenditure incorrectly, so you include expenditure outside the country, which never comes near it, you don't record the income correctly because that expenditure does not become income. And therefore, we end up with this total distortion. And that really irritates me. But I, how do I persuade Jackie? Because in my experience here, she doesn't want to be persuaded. Um, I don't see a way around that. We have to accept there's a political divide. And Jers is part of that narrative of political division. Let's go back to the point, why does the SNP still feed this? And let's just pray that they will eventually get their act together and collect the sort of data that Ross and I were talking about, but also get Jers onto a, a better basis. Okay. I mean, the other thing I wanted to bring up as well is that um, I think it's really important to bring us up in this show is the importance of your real resources. And I just looked for some data on uh, North Sea oil. And I just want to remind the audience that a barrel of oil is worth about four and a half years of human labor. When we peaked in 1999 in oil production, we were making only oil, not gas, six million barrels a day. Now, when you equate that as a resource, we would be in the same position as Norway. We would not have a deficit. We would be in surplus. There's no doubt about it. I mean, this is, and, and also our natural resources as far as wind energy, tidal energy, you know, this is, we wouldn't have a deficit. And not that a deficit's a bad thing. You know, I know I don't think it's a bad thing. It depends what the country needs to do. But, you know, we have way much more resources than we need as a population size. So, yeah, I mean, they, they just don't talk about real resources. Can I come back to that point? Because this is the other deficiency in the accounting here. I mean, one of the absurdities inside JERS is that there is a charge in there, and I've forgotten the number for this, but it's pretty big. It's a charge for the wearing out of the assets used in the production of the Scottish national income. But there's no balance sheet. Now, if you're an accountant, you understand that actually an income statement reconciles last year's balance sheet, the net worth of the organisation, the country, if you want in this case, with this year's net worth. But there isn't a balance sheet in this case. And in fact, not only is there this depreciation charge, but there's a very real risk that there's double counting going on. The depreciation charge is included, and I suspect quite a lot of the capital expenditure is also classified as direct cost in Scotland.
So we end up with the absurd situation that the level of transport expenditure for Scotland is higher than the UK on average, but actually we know more transport expenditure takes place in the southeast of England than anywhere else in the UK as a whole. So how does that work out? I don't get it. I think there might be some mixing of capital and revenue expenditure there. We have a very high level of housing expenditure cost in Scotland, which I'm not sure is entirely appropriate either compared to the total UK housing stock. Um, there's a, a significant level of expenditure on agriculture and um, forestry and other things, which is unsurprising given the fact there's a very large landmass to the number of people in Scotland. So that one doesn't surprise me in a real sense. That one would probably make sense because the landmass to head of population in Scotland is obviously high. But the point is that quite a lot of this expenditure might well be investment. And I don't think that is being reflected anywhere in these calculations. If we actually stand back and look at the Scottish economy, I mean, frankly, if I was an investor in a country, Scotland is a much better bet for me than at the moment than England would be. Why? Because Scotland has all the resources to survive climate change and England doesn't. It's got the potential for tidal power, but it's not being properly invested in, although credit where credit is due, the SNP is trying to do something about that, but it's hard going. And if we look at other things, it's got potential for vast amounts of wind power and it can do solar energy for quite a lot of the year, not as much as some other part, but its natural resources are great. It's still, it's used most of its hydro capacity, but there might be more. The fact is Scotland is in a phenomenally good position compared to other countries, especially England, and none of that is valued. And if you were doing a genuine balance sheet of Scotland, you would be putting a value of those assets on its balance sheet. And England would, in fact, end up with some massive negative liabilities for the cost of getting rid of the old economy, which in Scotland virtually looks like Grangemouth. Um, that's the big residual cost to get rid of. Whereas, in fact, in England, there's vast numbers of those. That's a brilliant point to pick up there. And, and you've got to look at what is not included as well as what Absolutely. is included when we're looking at and, and any other thing. Um, you both mentioned the word deficit, and I just want to clear this up because I was on Twitter today saying to people that Scotland doesn't have a deficit because it can't borrow. Now, you've both said Scotland does have a deficit, so can we just have a very brief conversation around that? No, I, I, I don't think that you know, Scotland does have a deficit. I don't think it has a deficit because we're not a currency issuing country, so we can't have a deficit. We have Scotland has an apportioned attributable part of the UK deficit at the moment. It is not a Scottish deficit. Again, I refer back to what I said this morning. The Scottish government on my blog, not in the National, I wrote an article for the National, which was different. And I wrote a quite different one from my own blog. Uh, on my blog, I pointed out that the Scottish government balances its books. If there is a deficit recorded in JERS, it is the sole and complete responsibility of the Westminster government because they are the only people who can run that deficit. So in the sense of does Scotland have a deficit, the answer is no, because Westminster runs one which it wishes to apportion to Scotland. And that is what JERS tells us. It says the Westminster government has run a deficit and it wants to dump some of those costs on Scotland. If you want the most perfect summary for everything I've said, that's it. And I agree in that sense, there is no Scottish deficit. There's a Westminster deficit, which they record as Scottish, but it isn't a Scottish deficit. And nobody should be able to stick a saltire on that and say made in Scotland, because it damn well wasn't. It was made in Westminster. Well, well uh, another point of the, the, that came in on my uh, came up in my conversations today is that um, people want to stick a saltire on the overall debt, the 34 billion figure, and have Scotland pay 
a percentage of that. And this was coming across quite strong, even from pro-independent supporters saying it's part of our debt, we should be paying it off. Now, I know both of your views on MMT, so I'm going to ask you to be concise on this. Is that the case? Should Scotland pay back a percentage of that debt that's sitting there on the books of the Westminster government? Absolutely not, William. You know, uh, uh, the the British government can create money as it likes, and um, and it also decides on the interest it pays on its bonds. Um, so no, we and 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 as far as the agreements concerned, the, the the British government will not be requiring us to take on any of their debt because it's not debt in the term that you and I would experience debt. We we would be in debt to something that we don't have. And when the British government is the monopoly issuer of the currency. So they can create as much money as they want. It's not a debt for them. Can I expand that? I mean yes I'm a modern monetary theorist, but I actually want to put it into other terms. Um, first of all, the UK has had a national debt since 1694 it doesn't ever intend to pay it off. There's a very clear legal principle, which is that if you are gonna compensate somebody, you can only compensate them for the cost they incur. If Scotland was ever to agree to repay UK national debt as a result of an independence agreement, the clause that I would negotiate, and I've negotiated a lot of agreements in my time, would be when you pay off your debt, come and ask us for a contribution towards whatever you paid off. We, you know, Scotland will never pay a penny on that basis, first of all. Secondly, actually, let's take oil into account. Is there anything that could be attributed to Scotland anyway? And I have a very strong suspicion that it actually will be, well, a number so close to zero, you could call it the square root of nothing. Um, the third thing is that actually I entirely agree with what Karen has just said. This is not debt as we'd normally see it. But the fourth thing is the only reason why they, we do have this thing called debt is not because the government owes anybody but because the UK government decides to provide a savings account facility to people who want to deposit money with it. That is what the UK national debt is. And the best indication of that is, in fact, that premium bonds are part of the UK national debt. Now, nobody who ever bought a premium bond thought that they were actually buying the UK national debt. They thought they were saving money and hoping to win a prize from Ernie or whatever it's called at the end of the month. But the point is that that's what the national debt is. And government bonds are just that as well. They're owned by pension funds because they want to save with the government and so on. So this debt is just a savings account, which the government provides you know, to benefit, the, frankly, the city of London and pension funds. So let's not pretend it's got to be repaid because those people want to own it. If you want the evidence that people want to own the national debt, um, I have to recommend an English author to you. It's called Jane Austen. Um, in Jane Austen novels, um, the mothers were normally capable of assessing the quality of the, the, the wealth of the um, potential son-in-laws for their daughters on the basis of the amount of the UK national debt they owned, the 4% it was called at the time. This is private savings and it's a phenomenal facility to the wealthy. And why should the UK be trying to repay debt to the wealthy of the UK who don't want it repaid to them for no benefit at all? It's complete nonsense. That's a UK responsibility for the future, but nothing Absolutely. to do at all. Nothing I, I, I think if, if we are stuck with Jairus and it doesn't disappear next year, I think people will have a much better understanding of what Jairus alludes to if they understand what the national debt actually is. Because yeah. the headline figure is Scotland owes this huge 
amount of money and would basically be insolvent would it be an independent country and i think if we understand what that debt is and what it isn't then jers looks very different and maybe we'll stop you know arguing amongst the kind of uh, you know the roots and take a step back and see exactly what it is uh, kieran we're getting towards the end of our hour richard you must be knackered thanks so much for doing this but i am going to ask kieran if she's got a final question for richard before we go um, no, I just wanted to say that I think it's really important this this aspect of understanding that I mean Stephen Hill put it very succinctly that you know that the government deficit is the money supply and uh, you know one of the reasons I started money one of the main reasons I started Modern Money Scotland with other people not on my own um, is that people you know also in England people accept austerity because they believe that they are responsible for this debt. And it's, it's, it's you know, this it's a really corrosive concept. And we really have to avail not just independent supporters, but people across the whole of the UK of this concept, because it's not just um, a problem for people who are uh, advancing the cause of independence. It's a problem for people that are just advancing progressive uh, politics. Yes, it is. I mean, we have to understand that this so-called debt, which is not debt at all, it is the money supply. Stephen's right about that. Um, and he's, you know, he's very good at explaining these issues. Read Stephanie Kelton's deficit myth as well. But the point about that is that this is not debt. But what looks like supposed debt we have to repay is, in fact, simply the deposits that people have made in savings accounts with the government. There's no difference between putting your money into a three-year saving account with a building society and buying a three-year government bond. What you've done is locked your money up got a bit of interest and at the end of the day you expect to be repaid the reason why you get less on the government bond that you do the building society is because the government's guarantee it can repay is so rock solid because it can always create the money to make the payment and the building society can't but the fact of the matter is why are we obsessed about the fact that the government runs a savings bank? Because that is what the, the supposed national debt is. It, it's just a glorified savings bank. And but this for me gets to the heart of the Jairs issue when you're an independent supporter, is that the Scottish government is not saying this. It's not yeah. talking about the national debt in that way. It's talking about it in this kind of neoliberal classical economic framework that this is a debt and we've got to be careful and we've got to be sustainable. And that's really difficult when you're trying to argue against the, the what, what JERS is, is pertaining to, to show because our government is saying that it kind of actually is showing that and it's something to worry about. And that's what makes JERS um, really interesting every year. Who knows if it will be here next year or any further than that. Um, if it is, we'll be back here and I think we'll hopefully be able to persuade uh, Richard to come back as well. Richard, we really appreciate your time. Uh, That's no as problem. Always. Thanks everyone for your comments and your questions. Um, until maybe next year or another special of Scotonomics, thanks so much for joining us.